Welcome back to the Magic Story Podcast. I'm your host, Harless. And I'm your other host, Natalie. This is the podcast where we recap the fiction story of magic and add our own flavor text thrown in. We are currently in the heart of season two, which follows the two-track story of The Brothers War. In this episode, we're recapping track one, episode four, called The Ink of Empires by Miguel Lopez, as well as track two, episode four, called The Dark by Reinhardt Suarez. Harless, let's get started, shall we? Let's do it. Join us as we head into the multiverse. So quick recap on what's happened so far in track one. If you remember, track one happens way, way in the past by thousands of years on Dominaria, all centered on the events of the Brothers' War, which has been nicknamed the Cataclysm. In the first two episodes, we follow the story of Kayla bin Krug, who was the queen of a city called Pendragon. She struggled to find salvation for her people in the wake of the Brothers' War and the impending Ice Age that eventually took over all of Dominaria. And she... She had to eventually leave Pentagon, and to do so, she passed through her old city, which had fallen many, many years ago, a city named Krug. And then in our very last episode, we actually rewinded by about 50 years before Kayla's story to see the heyday of Krug and the very first event of the Brothers' War that was the fall of Krug. And... Essentially, what happened in Sword One in the last episode of Track One is we followed a character who was a young cadet uh, piloting these machines called Avengers. And eventually, our young cadets have to abandon their posts with the Avengers and flee the city. And we were left with this quote at the end of Track One, Episode Three, that the war began at sunrise. And, and so it was this very, very bleak end to our episode last time. And so, Harless, why don't you introduce where we're going to be focusing on for this episode, episode four. Yeah, so for this episode, we switch a little from the previous perspective. To set the stage, we are 20 years after the fall of Krug, which we saw in the last episode. So the war has now been going on for two decades. A whole generation of Dominarians who have only known the Cataclysm. For this episode, we're going to follow the Falaji, also known as the Brass Caps. These are Mishra's forces, and these are actually the ones who stormed Krug in our last episode. Yeah, so I kind of want to paint a picture for us over what this episode is going to feel like a little bit. We are in the trench lines of the Brothers' War, and these trench lines are dark, they are muddy, they are... they're not fun places to be. And... We also have to remember that these trench lines are two decades old. And really, the soldiers describe this as being boring until it wasn't. And we're introduced to a character named Fareed. And Fareed's war had been one year-long walk home with mechanized death at his back and pestilence where he slept. Every illusion he had of glory, honor, and adventure was ground to pulpy meal, pressed into the mud along with honor and humanity. And he then goes on to note that when the war was this close to Tomical last, he hadn't even been born yet. So that's how old these trenches are. These trenches are literally older than a lot of the soldiers that are in them. Um, this happens much later but in the story, but little spoiler here. These trenches are so old and full of death that there's a moment that Fareed, in desperation to really explain something to the soldiers, which again, we'll get into in a minute, he punches through the trench wall and just pulls out a fresh bone. That's how full of death these trenches are. And this is just where everybody lives, you know, and, and they're used to it. And these trenches, which are covered in mud, which are falling apart, which have seen better days, which have been reinforced over and over, um, which get mudded out every time it rains again, no matter what they do, is described as being cozy in comparison to what's happening outside of the trenches. Yeah, that's a great image to kind of set the stage, Harless. Thank you. Like the current status of the Brothers War is that there have been equal casualties on both sides. There has not been a clear winner or a cl clear loser at this point. So the last time we saw it, Mishra's forces had a clear advantage over 
the people of Krug who were trying, who were struggling to defend themselves. But Urza's forces, the people of Krug, had fought back in the last two decades. And so there have been massive give and takes in these trench lines. That's why there are trench lines now. There's these lines in the war where there has not been any further advancement from either side. Um, And Urza's forces currently hold Argive, which is where our trench line is stationed outside of. They are right outside the city of Argive. And this is kind of the central defensive strength for Mishra's forces who are trying to aggress and take over Argive. There's another quote that about the trenches that I found really interesting. There were little cavities and burrows dug into the trench wall and reinforced by planks. Their muddy floors covered with strips of burlap and torn clothing taken from dead soldiers. And on that note of dead soldiers, I just want to give a trigger warning for this episode. So this episode includes scenes of trench warfare, violence, scenes of war, and descriptions of death. So please use caution with listeners under 13. And if this is just something that's sensitive to you that you don't want to hear, fast forward until we talk about track two in this episode. But back to the story. So we are following our main narrator, Farid, and his fellow brass cap soldiers. We are deep in the trench lines outside the city of Argive in a country called Tomakul. Farid has only known the cataclysm, war. He's just a soldier. He's not quite an officer, but he's still someone many of the others seem to look up to in their division. And the conditions of everyone here is just, well, it's horrendous. I honestly don't know how else to put it. Yeah, these, as you would put it earlier, these trench lines are over 20 years old, almost as old as Freed himself. And he was a baby. He, he remarks during the story that he was just born when the fall of Krug happened that we saw in the last episode. And it's just bleak ever since. Like the last 20 years have clearly not been good years in Dominaria. Every day is a struggle. For them and they are deteriorating you know they're, they're, it's like slow but sure they're faced with imminent death in these trench lines so to take us into kind of what's going on in this trench line where Farid is that the Argivian trench line is what it's called is currently in a temporary standstill the trench line was boring until it's not and right now it's boring but they know at any point Point, it could not be boring, and we all know what that means. So Farid and his best friend Karak are fixing soup made from chicken bones when news of quote-unquote new replacements arrive in the trench lines. And we don't really know who these new recruitments are, but everyone, including Farid and Karak, are hoping that they were machines. They had no resources or food left to feed any more humans, after all. Everyone was starving at this point. So, and above the trench lines is no man's land. There are layers of underground trenches going up multiple levels of dirt and rock and mud and wood via ladders in order to get to ground level. And once you get to ground level, you're in no man's land. It's utterly desolate. It's carpeted by bombs and emptiness and darkness. You don't want to be in no man's land, in other words. It's like, that's where the war is happening. So they're kind of tucked out of the war when you're in the trench line, as bleak as the trench line is. It's... It's cozier than being out in the in no man's land. So Farid and Karak are recognizing that these new reinforcements coming in, these new recruitments, it equates to activity. And activity, they remark that activity means bad things. They knew something was about to happen. And I quote for you, officers, movement, replacements, and reinforcements, activity. Nothing good could come of activity. Activity meant action. And action meant going over the top into the blades and fire of the machines. So that's the no man's land that Harless was just explaining for us. So they knew that they were on the precipice of some of movement in the war. They had been on a standstill and they knew that they're on the precipice of something changing here, which is which is pretty scary when you're on the front lines. The reinforcements for Farid's company come in. There's 10 men at most, and all of them are very young, except for one what is described as a very old veteran missing an eye. A lieutenant names Farid their senior and welcomes them. Welcome to the Argivian front, Farid said. I'm Farid of the Tomakul. This here is Karak of the Sawardi, Farid said. The rest you'll meet at some point. D Company has been thinned after the last retreat, which is why you're here. Talk to the quartermaster down that way. She'll get you your regimental patch and some thread to stitch on the company letter. Farid thumbed down the trench and the replacements all turned to look. Any of you from Tomakul or all of you from the desert tribes? The group nodded. 
The older veteran stared forward with his good eye. He had the same look as Karak. He was anywhere but here. He was nowhere at all. So these new recruits tried to make themselves at home the best they could in these trenches. And Farid could kind of tell that they were nothing but afraid. They were terrified to be here. I mean, I would be. Everything's quiet. They don't really talk all that much, except for one young new recruit who just comes up to Farid and asks Farid if they have seen the Argivians and their quote-unquote machine devils. And Farid confirms, and, but says he hasn't killed any. And Karak says the same thing. They both have only seen death, but not caused it at this point. Which just goes to show how massive this war is. There's just so much happening at any given time that there's so many dying and so many fighting all amidst machines. So not everyone is on that glorified front line like they make it out in the movies. And these new recruits show that they're naive right away. And honestly, they're pretty disrespectful. They call Farid and Karak trench rats and cowards because they say straight up that they haven't killed any Argivians. And this 15-year-old recruit, a kid named Assad, sputters out that they should just go and attack right now. Okay, okay, hold up. 15-year-old kid? So these are just boys these new these new replacements they're just they're like kids that blows my mind yeah what's interesting here is if you think about it Farid said that he said that the battle of Krug was when he was born that this is happening now and he's considered one of the more hardened soldiers on this line and he's like at what 20 20 yeah and Farid isn't really having it he gives a pretty startling lesson to Assad right there Farid drew his knife Assad stepped back bumping into his companions Farid grinned, then turned and stabbed his knife deep into the plank wall of the trench behind him. He levered out a chunk of rotting wood, sheathed his knife, and reached into the earth. He pulled a double handful of clay out from the cavity, dug a few scrapes deeper, and then wrenched something from deep inside the trench wall. He turned and held out a rag-wrapped length of bone, matted hair still clinging to the fetid remains. You're younger than this trench, Farid tossed the bone to the ground, at the youth's boots, but not by much. He pointed to the ragged, soggy bone. Look at that bone. That was a person. Can you tell me which uniform they wore? Oh, yeah, he's super not having it. This kid is like, I'm here to save the war. Or we should go attack right now. Yeah, let's get him. And Farid's like, you're going to die, kid. You're yeah. going to die. Like, yeah. this is a bad attitude to have. What really strikes me in this lesson that he's trying to teach Assad is, I quote for you again, look at that bone. That was a person. Can you tell me which uniform they wore? And so if, if we recall, Assad was kind of being like, you haven't killed any Archivians, like, and, and kind of calling everyone names for being cowards and not going out there and, and being in the, in the glorified front line, whatever that means. And Farid just kind of has this very real lesson over, because he's been in this war for so long, so for so many years, he knows that it doesn't matter which side you're on. You, it doesn't really matter whether you're on Urza's side or Mishra's side. They're all human, and humans have lived and died here in this trench line. And that's the message that Farid was trying to get across to this young kid. If they don't wise up and realize what's going on, this, you know, this kid's not going to make it, you know, and and Farid is kind of trying to give some some wisdom here to to a very, very young recruit who knows no better. Yeah, absolutely. Now, Farid then goes on to tell the soldiers that their cloaks and boots are the most important asset that they have here in the trench. He even goes as far as to tell them that if they're under attack, if they're afraid for their lives, abandon the trench and run. Grab your cloak, grab your boots, but abandon the trench. He quote, he says, quote, there's always another trench. Might not always be another cloak or pair of boots. Wow. And this shows kind of how long they've been at war. The new recruits who are coming in, they have they still have cloaks and boots, but they don't have the brass caps that everyone else had. They have these kind of soft caps that they're that they're wearing. And that's not because the design has evolved. It's because they're out of the metal. They need the metal on the front lines. They need the metal for the machines. Yeah. And so it's just bleak here, like you said. Like, there's no resources at all, and even the new recruits aren't equipped with everything the old recruits have. I respect Reed's sentence here where he's saying that there's always another trench, but there's not always another pair of boots. And I kind of almost took that as almost a metaphor that says 
the trench doesn't matter. What matters is your life. Yeah. And you need to save yourself first and foremost. And that's what is most important and most precious here on, on these trench lines is your own life and valuing that above glorifying yourself in the war or throwing yourself into the into the front lines without thinking. I, I respect that statement a lot. Farid and Karak talk to the old veteran, the one who lost his eye, and he reveals that he lost his eye at actually the Siege of Krug. He was there that day that the Dragon Engine attacked Krug, and we had seen the those Avengers with the young cadets, that whole scene. The, the veteran was there that day, and he says his name is Eamon. So we fast forward a week later, and Farid remarks that there's a lot of extra going on in the trenches. Extra armor, extra food, extra supplies. And I'm going to actually quote for you here on what extras kind of mean here. So they also doled out extra rations of nabiz and mutton, which were well received by the young replacements, who do not know what extra rations of wine and mutton meant. So yikes. Yeah, we can we can tell that Farid is wise enough to know what's going on. But these new replacements like Assad clearly do not. And Assad is overly ambitious and all proud and all wrapped up in young battle glory, thinking that this is all exciting when Farid and Karak really know a lot better. Yeah, and so the veterans, so that's Farid, Karak, and now Eamon, like you said, they know better. They know an attack is coming and what that means. So after dark, they conspire on something. Something that we as readers are in the dark about at first. We don't know what they're planning. All we know is that they have to do this thing before the attack comes. It has to be done in secret, and it has to be slipping past the trench lines at night. I really wonder what they're up to. So ultimately, the group is going to go on this top secret mission. So Fareed, Karak, and Eamon, they recruit a younger replacement um, named Asan. And the four of them plan how to get through no man's land above the trench for this top secret meeting up there. So as they're planning this, Fareed hears commotion in the trenches. And he pretty much immediately recognizes, okay, this isn't loud enough to be an attack. But there's commotion. Something's going on up here. So he goes to investigate reluctantly and he runs into something called a transmogrant, which is some, uh, something that Mishra's forces have created. It's a construct of Ashnon. And this is uh, what is referred to as the dead ones. And I'm going to actually read to you from the passage so you can get a pretty compelling idea of how horrifying these are. In the dying light, he could not make out many details of these horrors. But what he did see burned into his memory. He saw dead and graying skin, scoured from the cold and the sun, stretched and woven through dark metal. They walked without outward care of the cold. They carried no weapons, but wicked claws burst from weeping stumps. Bloodless flaps with dead tufts of hair pulled taut over polished metal domes. Chain bells hiding the ruins of faces but not the hot breath puffing out from between the links. I wish you could have seen my face as Harless was reading this sentence. I just, I, I get the heebie-jeebies. <laughs> like, I was just like, <laughs> I could I, I could only imagine what it's like to actually witness this. It's, <laughs> Yeah, but Fareed, who has been on the trench line for so long, sees these, is kind of horrified, and then is like, okay, back to work. And well, he... I, I want to say that, like... Farid kind of has the the stomach of someone who's seen all this before, but also the fact that even though transmogrants are not pleasant, they are not pleasant, like, ew. But yeah, they're described as, like, smelling. Yeah, they, they reek of death, too. Yeah. They are the dead ones. They're, they're these horrible constructs. But at least... At least, and this is from Farid's perspective, they will be, at least these transmogrants will be on the front lines of the upcoming battle and not, and not his own men. But still, I, <laughs> it's, it's, I think that's where Farid's kind of coming from. Um, and I, and like, and I hear it, but it still doesn't make the whole situation pleasant. Yeah, it's interesting because Farid really does, he describes himself as this like kind of battle hardened, wise, older, <laughs> he's like 20. He's 20. Older, yeah, older, um, grizzled, almost kind of guy. But that's not true because Farid consistently chooses human life over everything else. So we actually don't have too much time left to worry about what the heck is happening with this secret meeting because pretty soon after um, 
we find out that Fareed and his friends go over to meet with one of the officers who gives them a, a like a, a chit, as I think what they call it. It's basically a way of getting across the front lines, like through your own officers, like permission to get through, essentially. Yeah, it's and almost like a, almost like an order. It's almost like a physical embodiment of an order to follow. And with that permission, almost they're able to go out across any sort of line, right? Just like because they have like, like you said, officer like permission. permission. It's like a yeah. it's like a hallway slip, like a yeah, like a bathroom a slip. Pass is a great a pass. That's a great what that example. word is. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god, that made me feel really old that I forgot the word hall pass. Okay, <laughs> it's been a few years, Harless. <laughs> it's been a few years since high school. But so they meet up with one of the officers who is clearly in on this as well, and he's acting kind of threatening toward them, like you better bring me back a full sack. And Fareed's like, you got it. Don't worry. Like, I got you. And he's- and, and right now I'm thinking, full sack of what? I have like yes. no clue really what's going on. And, and it's and it's very, it's supposed to be very obscure to us. We're not supposed to fully understand what's going on right now. We just know that something is happening and they clearly have orders. We just don't know what they are yet. So one of my favorite parts of the story is Asan in general, his character, because just like the reader's, Horasan has no idea what's going on. He's been recruited to this mission. He doesn't really understand what's happening at all. I feel really, <laughs> I feel like uh, he's put there to experience being in the dark alongside us as readers, which is really a fun experience because you get to see him reacting in the same way that we're kind of reacting to the story as things pop up, which is very fun. And then they go out into the no man into no man's land. They cross over and they meet up with a group of Argivian soldiers, just everyday soldiers like them. In this kind of parlay, there's this moment of a truce on the middle of the battlefield. Yeah, they, they even say, like, let's go greet them. Like, right, they just kind of go out there with no weapons, no, no intent of doing harm. They just kind of, with arms open, just be, let's go meet them and talk with them. And so we have this moment of really kind of refreshing humanity <laughs> over just these everyday soldiers, doesn't matter what line you fight for, they're just meeting. Yeah, exactly. And they sit in this downed thopter and they spend hours just talking to each other. Turns out Eamon speaks fluent Argivian and can communicate very well with the soldiers from Argivia. And they each end up revealing the battle strategies of the opposing sides in the coming days. Fareed starts this by revealing to them that the transmograte army will be descending on them. And they have this such a human moment here where she decides she'll share information with them too. Turns out they have some really big clay statues coming their way. And in addition, she says to kind of basically let the machines take each other out and spare human life by just holding, like hanging back a little bit. And not rushing forward. Yeah, it's like they both agree, like both of these lines agree, now that we know each other's forces that are coming into this battle, right? All of Urza's war machines are coming and we have the Mishra's transmogrants. Let's just hang back, right? Like let's value human life here and not run into the fray because we know what could be met instead. Um, and so it's just a, it's like a shaking of hands where realizing that we're 20 years into this war and human life is so precious and they can't afford to lose a single person at this point. Absolutely. Now, the battle happens the next morning. The transmogrant army, as well as Farid's company, they head into the battle lines and there's a lot of casualties. So by the time Farid and the rest of the D company get into the battle lines, there are carpets of dead bodies. There's bombs, there's downed machines, and it's just really a bad scene. It's a scene of war. It's, yeah, it's a scene of war. It was, for me personally, it was very hard for me to read this, this scene. Um, so we're going to summarize very briefly yes. <laughs> <laughs> for, for you all. We're not, I think you all can imagine how, how terrible an actual battle is. Um, and so we'll just, we'll move forward <laughs> without going into too much detail. So eventually, Farid and the D Company actually reach the Argivian Trench, the other side of the trench line across No Man's Land. And strangely, they didn't come up with much resistance as they were going across this. Yes, there were casualties, but by the time that 
Fareed got there, it seemed like it was winding down, which is strange because just from the discussions the night before, it sounded like it was going to be a pretty equal battle. But instead, the Argivians had actually abandoned the trench line. And instead of being met with human resistance from the Argivian forces, instead there is a note left for Fareed and his company. And it's there's no name attached to this note, but instead it's just a heartfelt thank you. And we get the sense that this is from the Argivian captain that they had met from the night before. And they had decided purposefully to pull back from the trench line in order to save the soldiers, in order to save human life. And this goes back to Fareed's quote about there's always another trench, but there may not be another pair of boots. And so it just uh, it reiterates again how they agreed that human life was more precious and and that it wasn't worth um, all that bloodshed and all that all that you know, death she wrapped, just for the sake of a war. She wrapped the note around a piece of chocolate as well, which... Oh, chocolate during wartime, I bet, is uh, the, like like a novelty of a thing. It's also this, to me, it's this gesture of, I knew you would find this, like, mm-hmm. to support what you're saying. Like, you're going to you're gonna get here and you're going to be okay and here, enjoy this piece of chocolate because you made it another day. Yeah, and just thank you for saving yeah. our lives. Thank you. And and here's a return. Thank you to to here's to your life, too. And we didn't want to end it, you know, and and we decided that we were just going to spare each other. It's just it's such a good message after a horrendous scene throughout this episode. So at the very end of this episode, so we get the note with the chocolate to Fareed and company. And we actually Teferi, our planeswalker, actually comes in through the temporal anchor and lands in this no man's land immediately after this battle. And I'll say the aftermath of this whole thing that has happened. And he witnesses the catastrophe, the death, the absolutely horrendous conditions that Farid and company had been so used to. But this is the first time that Teferi was really witnessing it going back in time like this. And there are these like almost half human, half machine things named scavengers that are prowling through all of the dead bodies in no man's land when Teferi gets there and they're picking things off of the dead bodies. And these scavengers actually spot Teferi and they start calling out to him over brothers. Do you see him too? They almost like think that he's a God almost descending, descending into, into this no man's land out of nowhere. And Teferi remarks that first of all, he's horrified at what he sees. That this, a scene out of absolute apocalyptic, horrible scene. I couldn't imagine what it must be like to be Teferi in that moment, going back in time to see this for, for real. What has only been legends from his time, and he remarks that he feels that time is running short now. So Teferi, if we remember, Teferi is on a mission to find something in the past. He's looking for a very specific moment. And he's struggling to find it because it's so complicated in this war, this like knotted mess of time and death and like all these new beginnings and new ends that are that are, he's like he he equated the time of the Brothers War like this canvas with a bunch of holes in it. And those holes are battles because so many people had died during that time that there's just time cannot be mapped very well in that in that time frame. It was a really interesting analogy to hear Teferi uh, explain it. And we realize at this moment that Teferi is looking for something very specific. He's looking for the moment that, quote unquote, Urza and the Silex destroyed the world. This is what he's trying to find, is that moment where Urza and the Silex destroyed the world. And obviously we haven't seen it yet in the Brothers' War, but this is what Teferi keeps kind of poking around in the past for. And I, I suppose that's what he's trying to find. But the way that it's just described when, quote, Urza and the Silex destroy yeah. the world. I wouldn't want to go there. <laughs> I would want to find that. <laughs> so this was the first time that we got to see Misha's forces. We have previously on the last episode set with Urza's forces. And guess what? Human life is human life. Not that different. Being a soldier is terrible. Going into battle is terrifying. And war War is terrible. terrible. I got post-apocalyptic vibes 
from here, even though it's yeah. not the end. It's, you know, I mean, we haven't even got to the time where Urza destroys the world, but it already feels dead. It already feels long gone. It feels like the humanity of the world has passed on. And the humanity that we see is in these small moments in between soldiers. Yeah. And quite honestly, I shudder at an idea of it getting any worse than that. This, but it was hinted over what Teferi is truly looking for is the worst of the worst, which we have yet to see. It sounds like the Silex is the cataclysm. And I might speculate a little bit too, but I have a feeling we're going to get to see Urza soon. Or that not, and, and I specifically feel like Teferi and Urza are going to get to meet up again. Teferi's getting closer and, and I'm yeah. scared. I, let, let me just put it that way. I'm scared for what Teferi's going to find and why he wants to find this in particular. Speaking of Teferi, our themes carry over into track two as well. War is imminent for our Planeswalker friends at Urza's Tower. So Natalie, can we do a quick recap of what we know so far in track two, and then we'll dive in? Yeah, so in the past three episodes, we have followed our merry band of Planeswalkers who are currently stationed in Urza's Tower. And as we knew at the falling end of this last, of the track one episode, is that Teferi is using this artifact called the Temporal Anchor to poke around in time. He's trying to find the moment where Urza uses the Silex because it's the last key for them to understand how to defeat the Brexians. And the Brexians are on their doorstep. They know that they're about to find them. So we've got a huge band of planeswalkers trying to find the solution. And so last episode in episode three, we actually got to see behind enemy lines a little bit. We actually saw Tezzeret with Elish Norn in New Phyrexia. And we kind of, we got to see Norn's plans and how Tezzeret is mixed up into all this and Tezzeret's motives. And it's revealed that Karn is still alive and he is there with Elish Norn in New Phyrexia, which is kind of terrifying. So we are back in episode four and we are back at Urza's tower with the Phyrexians on our doorstep. So in episode four, we're following our planeswalker Elspeth. Now we introduced Elspeth in episode one, but as a reminder, she is a Knight, I think is the, just one of the best ways to describe Elspeth. She's honorable, she's fierce, and she can take you down with her sword in just a heartbeat. And she's very dedicated to doing what's right. There's something about Elspeth that always forces her to do the right thing, even when it is the most difficult thing for her to do. And right now, she's responsible for the defense of Urza's tower while Teferi is traveling through the temporal anchor and is indisposed. Because she knows the Phyrexians are inevitably going to find them. She just absolutely knows this. So I absolutely love Elspeth as a character. And we get to know her really well as we as we follow her through this episode. And it's, so I want you to imagine what this is like as, as Elspeth is preparing for the inevitable Phyrexians ending up on their doorstep. She is setting up Sahili's defensive turrets all over the place. Sahili has created an army of these machines to be able to fight for them. I mean, Sahili is a brilliant artificer, as we've seen in previous episodes. So she has been hard at work, not only creating the temporal anchor, but also creating all of these powerful artifacts to be able to help Elspeth and the other planeswalkers defend the tower when the Phyrexians find them. It's really stormy, so it's raining really, really hard during this scene. And it's quickly approaching night. So dusk and things are getting really, really dark. And Ren and Seven actually come out of the forest and approach Elspeth while she's putting up all these turrets. Um, and Ren actually has this interesting note about Elspeth. They've only met once briefly in a previous episode in this season. But Ren just kind of wanders up. And if you remember, Ren is a dryad who can read people's songs like she she sees people's energies as if they were melodies and songs and she actually has this cool quote about Elspeth yeah so so she says you inhabit two melodies how is this possible and Elspeth of course responds what do you mean like what <laughs> what what are you talking about <laughs> yeah um she's not been around Bryn and Seven very much so and then Bryn responds every being is part of a song a melody that contributes to the whole but you there are two melodies in you. One is a single note, constant and unerring. The other is cleft, 
An aria throttled midway. I, Elspeth began, you must be mistaken. There is no mistake. It is as if you live two separate lives, one in light, one in shadow. You're wrong, snapped Elspeth, slamming her sword back into the scabbard. And she's immediately embarrassed by oh, this. Just, like she, yeah. Um, oh man, I just, I I relate so heavily to Elspeth and we just get like insight into her here. Elspeth is as introverted as you could possibly get in a character. She is so, you don't know me, don't try to get to know me. She is, she's, I don't want to say that she's bristly because she doesn't mean to come off that way, but she can come off very non-personal, right? Like over, you do not know me personally, do not try to get to know me personally. She's just very, very interesting. Yeah, she actually, um, multiple times throughout the story, she has said, throughout the season rather, she has said, why is it to herself, not externally, but she said to herself, why does this person think they know me? This person keeps telling me I'm great or I'm good or like I'm inherently a good person and they don't even know me. Like what is going on? But I don't think she understands that she just, it rolls off of her in waves. And Ren can read that. Yeah. Ren can read her song. And I think it's really interesting because it's actually going to kind of be a little bit of a foreshadow over that Ren sees two sides of Elspeth where one is light and one is in shadow. And we're going to dive into that a little bit more later into this episode. But Ren sees it immediately. And Elspeth and, and Elspeth's not open to hearing it. I chuckle that Elspeth is just, she's so ruffled. Yeah. And as an introvert myself, I just relate so much to Elspeth because I also get a little ruffled when, you know, people pretend to know me and I'm like, you don't know me, but some people just give off the energy. Yeah. Right. So I just related so much as like a very much an Elspeth type person who's introverted and doesn't want to let people in, but naturally just attracts people towards you. It's just like, it's such a cool character. So this is, this interaction is interrupted by my most relatable character, which is Chandra. So Chandra shows up with Nyssa. They arrive during the storm and Chandra is described as um, a redhead. And honestly, that's the first thing you notice about her. I'm a redhead myself. That is the first thing people notice about me, can confirm. Um, But Chandra is this very um, boisterous person and she wears her heart on her sleeve and she doesn't always control her emotions the best. And I find that extremely relatable because sometimes your emotions just take over and it's very hard for some people like myself to compartmentalize all the time. And so seeing Chandra be able to use her emotional responses as part of her power is very powerful for me as a reader. I love Chandra so much. I think it's so funny, Harless. I think that if there were two opposite personalities in our Planeswalkers, it would be Elspeth and Chandra. 100%. On the, uh, on the other side. And it's so funny because we both relate to the other two. <laughs> I know. <laughs> uh, I, just, I, I find that funny. I chuckle. So just a quick description of Nyssa for, for those of you who have never met Nyssa. And if you are following along with our podcast. This is the first time that we do see Nyssa. So Nyssa is actually an elf and she is green aligned. She wears these awesome green cloaks and she's got this amazing staff that has like this green energy emanating from it. She's super powerful. She's super incredible. She's so passionate. Like that's, that's the best way that I can describe her. She's so passionate in everything that she does. So Elspeth and Ren welcome Chandra and Nyssa into the tower. And then Elspeth goes off to basically do some rounds around the perimeter and and make sure everything looks good to go. But when she returns to the tower, she sees Joda and Chandra have reunited and they are passing a jug of wine between them and remembering Jaya. They both coerce Elspeth into joining them, but she really doesn't want to. She's so reluctant. She's, as you said, such an introvert. She just keeps coming up with these excuses in her mind of why. I got to go study the maps. I don't want to, like, she doesn't want to. Intrude. Like, she doesn't know Joda. She doesn't, she just met Chandra. And she keeps reflecting that it irritates her that they seem to know her, like, just inherently, because because let's not forget that Ajani is really good friends with them, right? So Ajani has talked about Elspeth to them many, many times. Because he and Elspeth are besties. They're besties. And yeah. And so Elspeth is just, is just like, I don't know you, but you know me. This is really awkward. It's like, I, I just relate so much where it's like, hey, come party with us. And I'm just like, no, I just want to be at home. With my book. <laughs> And that's exactly what she's doing here. She's just trying to get away. But they say, and she says, you know, I didn't know Jaya well enough. And they are, they're so, they're so 
intense about the fact that this is a celebration of life. This is not a memorial um, and that she should sit with them and remember someone that she's lost. And she immediately thinks of many, many faces. They have this interesting moment where there's this unspoken acknowledgement that none of them consider Johnny dead yet. And we really feel that the pain Elspeth has whenever she thinks about jo a Johnny is just visceral. We don't know much about their history as readers at this point in the Brothers War, but we can really pick up on the fact that they mean a lot to each other and that him being gone is really devastating for her. And I mean, they have been through a lot. And obviously we won't we won't get into all the details from like the past 10 years of magic story that is seriously the tragedy of a Johnny and Elspeth. It but it was really a Johnny and Elspeth who fought for each other through immense complicated pasts of death and reunion. So as you remember in the last episode, a Johnny wears Elspeth's cloak even while Phyrexianized. And it's just a symbol of their friendship. They are they are the closest of friends because they have been just through so much together. And I think there's, you know, there's kind of this different level of friendship you have with someone when you do go through something like that together. You know, I not to get into too many personal stories, but there are times in my life where things have been really bleak and dire and people have been there through it with you and they help you through it and you form this bond that feels really unbreakable. It almost feels like family. Oh yeah. At that point. Having gone through multiple of these experiences together, I can't imagine how strong their bond must be, right? It's not just the death of a friend. It's not just one war. It's countless deaths, countless wars. So Elspeth, Chandra, Joda, they all cheers to their falling or missing friends. And not a few sentences after this in the episode, the inevitable happens. The Phyrexians have arrived at Urza's tower. It's nighttime. It's dark. It's the dead of night. And Sahili begs Elspeth for a little bit more time. Teferi is so close to discovering what they were after. And if they back out of the temporal anchor now, they're just not going to have a chance to go back. Elspeth must hold them off. A Phyrexian skyship arrives first. And it just unfolds from the sky. And I'm going to actually read the quote to you of when the skyship first arrives. The Thopters, visible only by their running lights, streaked into view, headed towards the skyship. Everyone watched as the Thopters buzzed around the shadow like so many gnats, flinging explosive charges that only succeeded in revealing what they were dealing with. Not so much a ship as a floating monstrosity of tapered horns and jagged spikes. The vessel kept itself aloft by sails that resembled scaly, bat-like wings. Okay, I just have to say it. This thing sounds really freaking cool. Like, I I hate that I love how cool Phyrexia is so much because... <laughs> Aesthetically, it must look, like, terrifying uh, so, and, like, yeah, chills, like, like, hairs stand on end over, like... Because it's shock value, right? And it's, and it's all about... You know, but it's metal as hell, Natalie. It's metal it as is. hell. <laughs> it is. <laughs> I, I, I am torn to Harless over how cool this looks aesthetically. Like, take my emotions out of the equation and just purely look at art and and the incredible aesthetics of what Phyrexia is. And I have goosebumps in, in like the best like, way. I just hear a guitar solo and like a double kick drum when I, when I read the visual of this. <laughs> yes. Yes. That's, that's how metal it is. Yeah. <laughs> so some, so ornithopters are the first round of attack, but Elspeth has a defensive plan, which as Joda puts it is bold. So they mount these mechanical steeds built by Sahili, of course, to literally ride out and meet the Phyrexians as if this is some epic medieval battle. However, her plan is to force the Phyrexians into unconventional warfare on purpose. She's basically forcing them to play by the rules. Um, so as we had mentioned before, Sahili had created these mechanical soldiers, all these immensely powerful artifacts for this moment, and they come to life and obey Elspeth's command. And that's when the Phyrexians charge. The front ranks bristled with humanoid warriors armored in black plate metal, their arm clusters tapering into blades, serrated edges, and needle-like spear points. Behind them strode mounted units, or what Elspeth first thought were knights on giant lupine creatures. But they moved too swiftly, navigated the slippery terrain much too well to have been a steed and rider. Each mounted foe was a single being, rider and mount, 
fused together. For all their fearsome numbers and weapons, the Phyrexian ground troops did not chill Elspeth as much as what she saw next. The night sky moved, and winged knights dipped into the light. They were hideous, their bodies made of black sickle-shaped blades bound together by strands of sinew. While some maintain a vaguely human shape, others either replace their bottom halves with a clutch of spider legs or eschewed legs altogether in favor of a spiked ball they could use to ram enemies from above. A spiked ball they could use to ram enemies from above. Like you said, Arliss, like goosebumps over the visuals of Phyrexia. I, I, sometimes I'm less speechless over how, how vivid (laughs) they are. Vivid is right. (laughs) You know, they are, the Phyrexians are just rushing at the Urza's tower. But then Joda does something that is even cooler than these Phyrexians are horrifying, in my opinion. And I wouldn't read this whole little paragraph here because I just thought this was so cool. Like I... I highlighted the whole thing and put a bunch of exclamation points beside it because I'm a nerd with my notes. With a motion of his hand and the utterance of a single mystic syllable, Joda unwove the phantasmal terrain spell he cast the previous day, revealing the staked trench that spanned from the far northern end of the tower complex all the way to the spot where Elspeth and Joda had stationed themselves. Too late to stop their forward momentum, the Phyrexian vanguard speared themselves on a crisscrossed lattice of sharpened logs. With another word of power... Joda caused the entire barricade to erupt into flame, thrusting the enemy into disarray. So first, he makes the ground disappear so that they fall into this spiked trench. And then he's just like, fireball. Yeah, because, you know, Joda. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's so cool. (laughs) So actually, one of my favorite scenes of this battle comes next, where so Sahili had created these lances that were powered by power stones and these these are Sahili's creation and she made two of them and Elspeth is wielding one and Joda is wielding the other and so they mount onto these specially constructed steeds of Sahili's making as well and kind of charge into the fray and they ignite the power stones within these lances and it actually creates this energy beam between the two of them, connecting them from either sides of the battlefield and create this beam of light connecting these two lances. And like they this use... massive rope between yes, the two of them? like this kind of massive like... light rope. Elspeth and Joda use these lances to just basically decimate the, the Phyrexians in the front line. It's like that that image just like stuck out to me as like incredibly oh, it's so vivid cool. and so cool. Yeah. Sahili, your creations are just... Wow, like it heard her artificing skill is just shining in this moment. One of my favorite parts of this scene is that Joda laments, why can't artificers make these things to be more than one time use? Um, which I think is so funny because, you know, Elspeth and, and he are sitting at the top of the hill on their steeds and they're like, okay, we got one shot. We got to get this right. And Joda's just like, for once, could an artificer make me a two time use item? Just please. <laughs> oh, I just, I just love also that, you know, there's just these kind of sarcastic, snarky remarks being made by all of our planeswalkers in the middle of this battle. You know, it's just, there's there's definitely some humor going on here between like, and it's Joda, you know, of course Joda's going to be making these remarks. I just like, as, as epic and as vivid as this and kind of scary this scene was when the Phyrexians arrived, Joda's still Joda and Elspeth is still Elspeth. And it just, it made me smile on many occasions. It's also a big juxtaposition to the silent fear of the trenches that we saw earlier. Yes. Like the planeswalkers are, they still have that like oomph because they haven't been in a war, but stuck in a trench their entire lives. And they don't, you know, like they just, they have more power over the situation. And I think it does such a good job of like, it's interesting because this like this very heroic battle that's happening right now is what all these soldiers thought that war was going to be like, but turns out they're not superhero planeswalkers basically. And so they're not capable of, of doing this. And so it just, it's a, it showcases how powerful the planeswalkers are, but B, it just also shows you really how worn down the soldiers were in the first track. So after this, Elspeth orders the aggressive charge of all of the currently defensive machines in front of the tower to kind of go forward and meet the Phyrexians head on in the middle of the battlefield. And while they are doing this, and it's actually pretty effective because just a little bit of tidbit, 
Elspeth has fought Phyrexians before, and now she is forced to fight them again. They're her worst nightmare. So she's really good at uh, predicting what the Phyrexians are going to do. So it's really effective, the, the battle strategy that, that she had in place. And it gives her a moment to go over and save Joda, who had actually become pinned against the on-fire barricade during all of this. And she goes over with her steed and, and frees him from the barricade. And during all this, combined with the machines that were charging forward and keeping the Phyrexians back, the Phyrexian strength kind of fizzles just a little bit. It gives them a little bit of a reprieve. However, victory is far from won. So there's actually a quote here that I'm going to read that we'll read to you of what happens next, because it's just chilling. Framed by the billow of green black clouds, the silhouette of the Phyrexian skyship shuddered and began to move, to grow, to unfold like a beast arising from a long rest. Several more gargantuan legs sprouted from the bottom of the skyship's hull, raising its body higher than the top of the tower. Blood-red arcane sigils became visible upon its black form. Symbols Elspeth knew by sight, even if she couldn't read them. It was the language of Phyrexia, emblazoned on the behemoth to proclaim the coming of a new order. It began to move forward, quaking the ground step by colossal step. We can't let that thing near the tower, said Elspeth. Agreed, said Joda. Ardent resolve replacing his earlier cheer. But I need to know, how much do you believe in your own power? <laughs> okay, so they obviously have to stop the skyship from reaching the tower, right? This massive monolith of the thing. They have to stop it. And what Joda says to Elspeth next just is, just shows how much Joda knows her. <laughs> and it just, it almost brought tears to my eyes. And I actually would love to read it to you all just because of how important I think this moment is for Elspeth as a character and what Joda says to her. You are powerful, Elspeth, not because of the strength in your sword arm and not because you are a planeswalker. It's deeper. Your desire for connection, to be the hand that thrusts itself into the flames to rescue another, to have peace, family, a home, to belong. I told you, I've been around a good long while, and in my time, I've dealt with many mages, some with more affinity for certain magic than others. Looking at you, it's like gazing at a white-hot sun trying to hide itself. No more hiding, Elspeth. He closed his hand around the pouch, gripping it tightly. A final gift from Jaya to Phyrexia. Chandra would be the natural choice, but the very first thing I learned about magic is that fire and light are not so distant. You can help me cast it. So Joda puts his faith and all this power in Elspeth's hand and basically tells her, stop hiding. You need to embrace your power and who you are. And it's just like, Gosh, Joda's so good at reading people, <laughs> even Elspeth. <laughs> I guess when you're like 4,000 years old, you get pretty good at it. Yeah, I guess I guess uh, Joda has earned that, you know, from, from being around for so long. So with that, Joda and Elspeth speed toward the Phyrexian beast until they are directly under it. Underneath this monstrosity, Joda taps into Elspeth's mind, beginning to harness energy and power together. He commands her to let go of anger and pain and fear, to let go of herself. And she does. Elspeth taps into power within herself that she did not know existed, not because of any experience or training or magic, but because of her hope and love and internal strength. Joda tells her to focus on one thing, the one thing that gives Elspeth all of that, hope, love, internal strength, purpose. And she immediately thinks of Ajani because he was the one, that one person in her life who could give her hope, lend her strength. Home is duty. Family is those you choose to defend. You have always had everything you ever needed. Now Elspeth understood what Giada was trying to tell her. What a fairy beseeched her to do that first night after arriving on Dominaria. Her duty wasn't only to protect others. She needed to allow herself to be protected by those who she loved. Her family. To trust them. Just like Ajani trusted her to rescue him. She would do it. She would bring him back. She would believe. Goosebumps! <laughs> and at this point, a column of radiance poured out of her blasting upward toward the sky, surging over Joda and scintillating coils of power. So this, this internal strength that Elspeth had just bursts forward in this massive energy that basically collides into the this, this skyship above them and just vaporizes it. Like Elspeth is so powerful in this moment because of Joda channeling this energy and Jaya's last gift 
that together they completely destroy this skyship. It's just such a cool moment. If only that was enough. After the skyship is destroyed, Phyrexian ground forces advance on the tower. And it turns out the skyship was a distraction. Now, at this point, who should appear but Rona? Rona is back. Rona is back. Uh, and she immediately starts blasting lightning at both of them. And she stabs Joda in the gut with her glaive. So Elspeth's power at this point was just completely exhausted after destroy. I mean, she just destroyed a skyship. Okay, it's, it's, it's understandable. But she does manage to face off with Rona, like, sword to sword. So this is, like, hand-to-hand combat that she is in with uh, with Rona. And Elspeth delves her sword into Rona's shoulder. And basically, like, because Rona is, you know, half machine, half organic, it doesn't kill her. But it definitely does some damage. And at this point, Elspeth has a moment to look over at Joda. And he's lying motionless on the ground. But luckily, Elspeth has Halo. Now, Halo is something we haven't talked about on this podcast yet. Halo was introduced in The Streets of New Capenna, which came out just a couple of sets before we started this whole uh, track with Dominaria. Now, Halo is still a mysterious substance. No one quite understands exactly what it is, exactly where it comes from, or exactly what it does, but Elspeth knows it's powerful enough to save his life. Okay, so Elspeth has this emergency stash of Halo, and... She just needs to be able to get to Joda to be able to save his life. Otherwise, he's going to die. And at this moment, Tezzeret appears. Of course. Tezzeret, of course. Tezzeret was our planeswalker from last episode. And we knew this was inevitable. We knew that Tezzeret was going to get here. And he announces that the tower will not survive until the morning. It will be destroyed. But he gives Elspeth and Joda a chance to escape. And this really... This rattles Elspeth because she's like, why would you even give us a chance to escape? And his response is small cracks. And it's clear that Tezzeret is just playing a mind game with, with the planeswalkers at this point. He is making tiny little fissures in on both sides that we know is going to play a part in, in, in future episodes. Yeah, I love he says um, small cracks, Tyrell. That's how even the mightiest edifice begins to crumble. He bowed his head in what Elspeth could only guess was a twisted gesture of respect. May this be the last time our paths cross. Then he walked back into the dark. And we are left with that. So we're left with Joda, dead or dying. And Elspeth is spared by Tezzeret's strange ulterior, obviously ulterior motive, mercy. And the tower is on the brink of destruction. And that's how we leave the episode. <laughs> now... Throughout this episode, there have also been frequent interludes throughout the chapters. And it was someone speaking this whole time, letter style. It was clearly addressed to Elspeth. It expressed a couple of, uh, or it expressed a couple of different moments in her life that were identifiable. And this voice half haunted Elspeth, half guided her almost. It spoke of the Theros gods, how Daxos hunts her. Fun fact, Daxos is actually Elspeth's former love. But Elspeth was tricked into killing him, which is why he wants to hunt her. So Daxos is a name that kind of haunts Elspeth at this point. And Phyrexia, addressing it as almost a living thing. In the very end of the episode, the voice is revealed to be none other than Ashiok. Ooh. So in this podcast, we haven't talked about Ashiok yet. And this is a very surprising reveal at the end of this episode. And just a really quick backstory here. So long story short, Elspeth and Ashiok have a very complicated history. A few years ago, we released a set named Theros Beyond Death. And in this set, in this story, Elspeth at this point was dead. She was in the Theros underworld, tormented by nightmares of the Phyrexians. So Ashiok is a planeswalker that feeds on nightmares. And so this is where Ashiok and Elspeth were first kind of connected is through Elspeth's nightmares in the underworld. And Ashiok learned of Phyrexia from Elspeth. And Ashiok was very curious about the Phyrexians after this. And so they left, they planes walked away to go and try and find more about the Phyrexians. And ultimately, Elspeth managed to planes walk out of the Theros underworld. It's a long story short. She managed to planes walk out of the underworld and back into the multiverse, which is why she is here now. But Ashiok is also known as the Nightmare. That's kind of their nickname. 
And Ashiok had haunted the plain of Theros for a long age, but was really unclear why. And it's rumored that Ashiok somehow came into contact with Elish Norn herself right after this, after Ashiok had planeswalked out of Theros. And Ashiok had summoned a vision of Elspeth before retreating from Elish Norn. So I wondered, did they have some sort of face-off, like Norn and Ashiok, unknown? Maybe, I'm speculating here. Thus, this inspired Ashiok to reach out to Elspeth again this episode. So I can't tell whether this is really good or really, really bad. It could go either way. Uh, We don't know Ashiok's motives here, but knowing Ashiok, it's... Probably not good. It's probably bad news. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, we don't know what Ashiok is after. We also don't know... Is Joda alive? Is he going to make it? Is the halo enough? Was Elspeth able to get to him in time? We don't know at the end of this episode. And I am so scared that I know. We, we might can't lose, lose Joda. Joda. We nope. might lose Joda. <laughs> I don't want to. I don't want it. <laughs> we also don't know the fate of the tower or anyone in it. We don't know what Teferi, what's happening with Teferi, Sahili, Chandra, and Nyssa over at the tower. We have no idea what's going on with them. My assumption is that they're defending it. We don't know how the Phyrexians found out they were here and what motivated them to come here. And we don't know what Teferi truly seeks in the past. We don't know if it's a good idea after all we've seen anyway. Yeah, there's just a lot of questions that I have at this point. And we're left on a pretty massive cliffhanger, I have to say. Yes, well, I guess we'll have to wait and see in the finale of the Brothers War next episode, as always. You can read up on these stories at mtgstory.com. We'll see you next time on the Magic Story Podcast. And until then, have have a magical magical day. day.